Hi, it's Jonathan. Welcome to episode 70. This week, more of your thoughts on blindness education and what gets the best results. More feedback on some of Apple's new releases and some Apple Watch tips. What has happened to a bunch of radio stations on Apple Music and a lot more. You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email, or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736, and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast. And I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. You have a lot of choice out there, a lot of choice. So I really appreciate you choosing this show. Thank you so much. It's good to have you back this week. We've had a few inklings of spring in Wellington, New Zealand's capital, this week. Although at the beginning of the week, it was bitter cold. And the place that we're heading to for our holiday tomorrow, as I put this show together, was pretty much snowed in. Yeah, snow in New Zealand towards the end of September. A lot of people think that snow in New Zealand is unusual. It actually isn't. We've got some of the most beautiful mountainous regions and skiing in the Southern Hemisphere. And a lot of people from the Northern Hemisphere, when times are normal, come to us in sort of June, July, August when it's summer in the Northern Hemisphere, to get some beautiful skiing in. But uh, we wouldn't mind if it's a little bit snowy, but not being snowed in to the point that the airport's not open, so we can't get on with our much-anticipated and planned holiday period. So fingers crossed, it seems pretty good at the moment. As always, we're going to have a wide-ranging discussion, thanks to all the things that you have sent in and some of the things that I will contribute on the show today. And I want to start with one of those things, and it takes us back a bit. We had a discussion on Mosin at Large about taking back the word blind and how we need to demand that sighted people stop using the word blind as a pejorative, as an insult. Some of us talked of blind pride and maybe using that hashtag a bit more. When I find these examples, examples of sighted people using blindness in a pejorative sense, I do intend to call them out. And I've got a pretty egregious one to tell you about. As you will be aware, 
Last Tuesday night, America was supposed to have a presidential debate. Now, they didn't have that. Little wonder that Americans were frustrated, and I certainly have a lot of empathy for that position. They were appalled, and I think some of them were fearful of the future. Some of those emotions were expressed in a tweet by someone that I've not heard of before, but it looks like she's actually quite famous. The woman's name is Whitney Cummings, and my research tells me that she is an actor and supposedly a stand-up comedian. You might want to be the judge of that. During the debate, she tweeted the following, and I'm quoting directly now. She says, I'd say this is the blind leading the blind, but I feel like this is the actual blind leading the actual blind. Now, that's the tweet, and when I last checked, it had been retweeted 81 times and liked 965 times. This tweet makes it very clear that she's not talking about metaphors here, and that is often, of course, the excuse used by people who use this ridiculous blind leading the blind phrase to somehow imply incompetence. She talks derisively of the actual blind leading the actual blind, as if it's obvious to anyone with a brain that an actual blind person leading another actual blind person would be a disastrous idea. Some people agreed with her, but I was also very proud to read blind people and some sighted people too who stood up to be counted, who called her out on her ableism. And there's no doubt that's what it is. It is absolute, pure, unadulterated ableism. Several people urged her to delete the tweet. She's not done so, nor has she apologized for the tweet. I guess that belittling and denigrating an entire minority counts for stand-up comedy in her mind. Now, we know that in the United States, racial equity is something that is pretty elusive right now. But if you want a reminder of how far down the pecking order disabled people are, imagine if that tweet had denigrated an entire ethnic minority, which would have been, of course, absolutely repugnant. I suspect that by now, a network like CNN would have picked up the tweet. And let me be clear. I don't begrudge that for one moment. They would be right to pick up and amplify the tweet and call Whitney Cummings on it or anyone else who tweeted something racially offensive like that. But there would have been quite a firestorm and eventually Whitney Cummings would have been forced to offer a groveling apology. If she's got some sort of contract, which she may have as an actor, it would probably have been cancelled and on and on it would go. In this case... She has denigrated blind people in the guise of stand-up comedy, and no one in the mainstream cares. Now, there will be people out there who say, stop being so sensitive, it doesn't matter in the wider scheme of things. But I respectfully disagree. These sorts of things do matter, because when you go out there looking for work, or you otherwise seek inclusion and acceptance in society, we're often held back by misconceptions about the capabilities of blind people. And one of those roughly 1,000 people who have so far reacted in some way to that tweet, or one of her 1,470,691 followers who has read that tweet, could be the person you meet next at your next job interview. This stuff does matter. We don't have to get nasty about it, but we can and should. In fact, I would say we have a moral obligation to stand up and proclaim pride in our history. Pride in people like Louis Braille, 
who was blind himself and faced down a lot of sighted opposition and gave us true literacy. Pride in the blind people who have held elected office around the world, irrespective of what you think of their politics. People like David Blunkett and David Patterson and more. Pride in those many blind people at international, national and regional level who have indeed led the blind with life-changing results. So yes, we should call ableism out when we see it, because our silence implies consent and it enables the ableism. And we are all losers when that happens. We cut way over to Canada, where Steve Cutway says, We had a calamity this week. Our satellite TV PVR died. To replace it was going to increase our monthly rental, so we opted instead to switch from Bell Satellite TV to Bell Fiber TV. He's actually got Fibe, F-I-B-E, so maybe it is Fibe. Because we already have Bell, yeah, he's done it again, so it, it must be Fibe. That's a cool name. Pretty Fibe, dude. Because we already have Bell Fibe internet and home phone, our monthly bill will actually be lower. Can you believe it? That's very good news, Steve. The switch will happen tomorrow, possibly during your show. So whether I'll get to listen live remains to be seen. So the upshot is that I have to unlearn 17 years of learning and learn a whole new system. I'm getting too old for this, he says. My question doesn't have anything to do with this change. However, Bell suggests an Amazon Fire TV stick as a way of making their Fibe TV service more accessible because the Bell Fibe TV apps can be installed on the stick. I know that the Apple TV app can also be installed. Do you or any of your listeners know of an internet radio app that can be installed on the stick? If there is one, I'd probably say bye-bye to my Apple TV fourth generation. I haven't been happy with it. Thanks either way, and thanks for all the info Mosin at Large provides. It reminds me of your original Moon Menu show on ACB Radio, but it's on at a better time. Well, thank you, Steve. I think you can get both TuneIn and my Tuner Radio for the Fire Stick, but I don't own one, so I can't actually confirm it. If you have a Fire TV Stick and you're rocking a radio app, perhaps you are listening to this show as we speak on the Fire TV Stick, then please let us know what Steve might do if he wants to listen to internet radio with it. Gino J confirms it. He tweets in to say, yes, the Fire TV Stick does indeed have tune-in radio. It also supports iHeartRadio. Looks like that's all in the box without having to install anything at all. And that now is a really good time to consider an Amazon product of any kind or anything from Amazon, because, of course, Prime Day is coming up in just a week or so. So you may be able to get a really good deal on an Amazon Fire TV stick. Isn't podcasting a wonderful medium? I like podcasting. I've been doing it since 2004, so I guess I must like it. And I do get questions from people who are interested in doing some podcasting themselves. And three years ago, I put together a series of webinars called Unleash Your Inner Podcast. And you can still buy that. A lot of it's still relevant. I think I would add considerably more now if I were to do it again. But there's nothing that's really out of date in that webinar series. So you can go to the mosin.org website and still buy that. However, 
free is good, isn't it? Free is good. And recently I learned of a series of webinars which will take place all the way through October. They are based in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I believe the NPR affiliate is running this and some pretty capable people. I've not heard of any of them, but that doesn't mean anything. It looks like this is really well done. And it's called the Charlotte Podcast Festival because it's in Charlotte, North Carolina. And every day they have at least one, sometimes more, free webinars that you can attend. Now, the site, while running a bit slow, actually, it seems to me, is 100% accessible. And so is the process for reserving your tickets to these events. So you can't just turn up. You do have to go in and reserve your place. And then you'll get an email confirming your reservation. And in checking with the organizers of this festival, they have confirmed to me that it'll all take place on Zoom, which is probably the most super accessible choice they could have made for the webinar platform. So whether you haven't started a podcast yet and you want to know how to get started, maybe you have one, you're looking at lifting your game in your podcast, you're looking at audio production, marketing, what to say when you're behind the mic to captivate an audience. It's all covered on this free Charlotte Podcast Festival. They also have some webinars on audio production, but none of the accessible options, sadly, that most of us tend to use. Nevertheless, there will be some techniques relating to audio editing, that kind of thing, that may be useful. But clearly, those ones will have a visual focus, and one can understand that these are not webinars designed specifically for a blind audience. So if you'd like to check out the program and potentially register for some of these webinars, you can go to charlottepodcastfestival.com. That is all one word, charlottepodcastfestival.com. If you register for a webinar and the time isn't suitable for you, then they will send you a link to a recording of the webinar afterward. So being able to turn up in person is not a prerequisite for enjoying this material. That's charlottepodcastfestival.com. Hello, Jonathan. I am Stephen from Singapore. I wonder if it is possible to plug in my guitar amplifier into my iPhone 8 via its output. I quite recently bought an expensive lightning cable with 3.5 inch jack at the other end and plugged it into the back of my amplifier. To my disappointment, after plugging my guitar into the amplifier, there was no sound from my iPhone let alone when I swipe left to right. I have to explain that I hope to be able to do this in order to perform online, as we are prohibited from doing street performances due to COVID. Do I have to go through GarageBand to do it? Should I use an RCA cable instead? I understand it is possible to do it with an Android phone. Hope you can help. So as I understand it, you want to stream your guitar. So the workflow is that you have your guitar and then you have a cable going from the guitar amp into the iPhone and you want to record from the iPhone. If I have that right, then I think you would need some sort of device that emulates an audio interface. I don't think just a cable would be sufficient. So I think what you would need is something like a little audio interface that has the ability to plug into a lightning connector, maybe battery powered. 
and then you would uh, it would show up as an audio interface. You would plug your guitar amp into that audio interface, and that would probably have a little headphone jack so that you can hear voiceover through the headphone jack of the audio interface. And then any editor should work, like Ferrite or um, anything, really. That is my hunch, Stephen. But let's throw it out there and see whether there are any other musicians who can specifically recommend a gadget that will do this. I have a little Zoom device which can get its power either from USB and a battery pack or from, I think it's AA batteries that you can put in the device. It's just a little audio interface. And you probably have an Apple store in Singapore. If you were to check the Apple store app, you'll probably find something. But let's see if anybody can give you a specific product recommendation. In case it helps, the Zoom device that I'm talking about is called the Zoom U44. It may be more device than you want. It's got XLR and uh, sort of a quarter-inch hybrid type jacks. But I'm pretty confident that will work. So you might want to check the specs for the Zoom U44 and see if it does what you want. Calling all the networking nerds out there, because Marvin Hunkin is in touch. He says that he needs to create a network diagram for an assignment for a networking course. He says, have you had any experience with that? If so, which ones and which screen readers does it work with? Or would the entity relationship diagram work in Visual Studio? I need to do either a network diagram or Gantt charts unless Microsoft Project is more accessible. Any ideas, he says. So if anyone has done this, let us know and help Marvin out. We've had a lot of reaction again this week on the subject of mainstreaming versus schools for the blind. Not all the experiences are terribly pleasant, so I appreciate people feeling that they're safe to share these experiences. And we begin this week with Karen Ashland. She says, I attended the Oregon State School for the Blind for seven years, starting there when I was barely five years old. I learned Braille and other necessary blindness skills in spite of some of the teachers. There was cruelty meted out from the house parents as well as some of the teachers, and I did not handle this treatment well. All the blind students in the Eugene Springfield area were transferred to local schools when I entered sixth grade. I did not do well in the public school either and did not make friends. I did not have a resource room. Instead, I had an itinerant teacher who came to my school once a week if I was lucky. I went to the University of Oregon, majoring in music because it was easy. The university would not certify me to teach, and I didn't fight them. I feel that the needs of blind students should be assessed individually. Unfortunately, children in Oregon no longer have the option of going to a school for the blind, as the legislators opted to sell the property to a hospital that had coveted it for some time. Hey, Jonathan, it's Jim East from Gainesville, Florida. I was mainstreamed. Uh, I went to a summer camp once at the Florida School for the Deaf and Blind. I also learned that uh, Ray Charles had been kicked out of the Florida School for the Deaf and Blind. They've named their adult transition uh, dormitory for Ray Charles. That's kind of interesting. Anyway, I at one time was the liaison to the Florida School for the Deaf and Blind for our blindness agency, Florida Vision Blind Services. But here's my, my take on all this. My parents 
went to a camp when I was a small child called Camp Challenge. And I did activities for kids, and my parents went to activities for parents of blind children. I had low vision then, but basically what we came down to was a decision that my parents wanted to raise me. So I stayed in the homeschool, which had a resource room, and I was self-contained in a vision room for grades first through third. But I was in the South Florida Day County School System. And I don't want to get into any cultural or political debates with anyone, but unfortunately, living in a border state, Florida, uh, the system was a little bit overwhelmed by refugees. And so as a result, the monies that were supposed to be caring for and serving kids with disabilities, a lot of them were used for the English Second Language Program. And so when I was in third grade, I learned that I was on a first grade reading in third grade. And that shocked me. I came home from school crying, and my mom went to know. But I wasn't excited. I got a new reading book. And I don't know what got my attention, but I asked my teacher if it was a third grade reading book. And she said, no, Jim, you can't read a third grade reading book. And that was using a CCTV or a closed circuit television back then. It was a digital type, big monstrosity machine. Now they got the handheld. But in a nutshell, got to shorten this up a little bit. My parents learned that the Orange County School System in the Orlando area uh, there was a pilot program with lots of researchers, great educators of the visually impaired at a place called Princeton Elementary, ironically the same place that John Young went to school, the astronaut, but that was several years before. Anyway, there I made up three grade levels in two years. I had to repeat the fourth grade. And by the time I hit junior high, we called it back then, I was an honor student. All the way through high school, still an honor student, I started out with flash print, and then I went to auditory learning because Braille, I was told, was expensive, and we didn't have electronic Braille yet. And so I learned a little bit of grade one and some of grade two, and unfortunately, haven't progressed much past that. And I'm great with audio books and computers and screen readers and all that stuff. And I went to the university, University of Florida. Again, uh, successfully finished with a bachelor's degree in political science and sociology and worked for a while doing quality assurance for Disney. They stuck me in a bump job we thought would be good for blind people, monitoring and coaching operators and quality assurance. Kind of funny. But it was a good adult job. And then I went back to school and got a master's in rehab and mental health and did some mental health counseling for a while. And then I went into my best fit job placement and training with the Florida Division of Blind Services. Hello, Jonathan. This is Allison Fallon in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I went to the School for the Blind until midway in sixth grade, and then I went to public school. My parents lived close to the school, so I was a day student. I had an itinerant teacher, that's what they were called back then, and she came maybe once every two weeks or once a month. And she did my tests with me. She brailled them or she read them to me. And I really liked being in public school, but I felt I was behind when I went there because the School for the Blind did not teach me how to spell words. For instance, from was an F because it was a contraction, and I didn't know how to spell it. 
so. I passed sixth grade with the understanding that my mother would work with me during the summer, and she did. And then I moved on to, well, back then they called it junior high. I never felt bullied. I was involved in classes. I was involved in clubs. And people were really pretty wonderful to me. My husband, Joe, went to the school for the blind from kindergarten to 12th grade. And I think, and he would agree, if he were still here, that I was better socialized than he was. But I liked the way it worked out for me. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, all your listeners. This is Andy Rebscher. Now, I attended a school for the blind, so I sort of favored institutionalization to a point. I mainstreamed after my ninth grade year, so I was also cognizant of the benefits in mainstreaming. So that was my perspective at the time. Now, this was 1974. I went to this counselor, and he said, Oh, good. This guy, he's a professor of special education, and he's looking for an intern, and his specialty is mental retardation, and you're a blind guy. By golly, this would be a good fit for you. And I thought to myself, yeah, okay. But, yeah, it's paycheck. I want to stay here because I wanted to work for the college radio station in the summer, and I didn't want to have to go home. So I took the job. And it turned out what my gig was is I don't even remember doing most anything except for recording on my Sony tape recorder his lectures, this professor. And his whole thrust was, Institution bad, mainstream good. So he had another four or five people working for him who were all grad students, and they were so gung-ho on his whole thing. And we would ride to these gigs in this big van and sit on a box in the back. <laughs> it was kind of like being in a band and riding with the equipment, you know. He packed all these people in the van. We're going to this lecture now that I have to do somewhere. I forget where. And uh, we would go there. And the thing I remember most about working for him was riding way in the back, talking to a bunch of the grad students in low voices so that Mr. Important, who was driving, would not overhear me saying this stuff. And I said, come on, you guys. The way you present all this is more like there's rubber hoses and waterboarding taking place at these institutions. I went to a school for the blind, and I thought it was fantastic. I left there because... I had outgrown it. There were certain things that I needed that they didn't provide when I got older. My younger formative years were so important to me, being there. And there was no convincing anyone. It was like today's political universe where one person thinks this and somebody else thinks that. They might be polite when they talk about it, but they cannot even begin to give an inch one way or the other. And it was a very uncomfortable situation in a way, but it was sort of affirming to me to be able to stand up and say, 
Look, you guys, you know, you're sort of halfway full of soup here. And uh, think about this before you totally chuck all this old educational system and put something else in that's unequipped to deal with it. And by now, maybe it's better. But at that time, certainly, it was unequipped to deal with it. A most interesting contribution, Andy. Despite your use of profanity, who'd have thought somebody would get away with saying soup on Mosin at large? I don't know. Standards these days. But I completely agree, and it's the point that I made on last week's show, that sometimes philosophy seems to take precedence over good quality outcomes, and you really illustrated that well in your contribution. Kathy Blackburn in Austin says, I went to a regular kindergarten, attended the school for the blind from first through sixth grade, and then attended seventh through twelfth grade in public school. I became a good braille reader, not because instruction at the school for the blind was superior, but because I was motivated. I know this because in sixth grade, my class had to undergo remedial braille instruction. My third grade teacher did not read braille, And when my classmates were sending letters home, I read their letters to her so she could interline them in print. No one talked about bullying then, but it definitely went on at the School for the Blind. Teachers and house parents did not deal with the problem at all effectively. Changing to mainstream education was my liberation. I was happier by several orders of magnitude. I had friends. I think I got a better academic education in public school, particularly in mathematics, until it came to trigonometry, when I couldn't get a Braille book. I had to change teachers in geometry because the first one could not adapt her teaching style to accommodate a blind student, and I think she was giving me unmerited poor grades. My resource teacher caught on to what was going on, and helped my parents get me into a different class. I didn't date in high school, but I did go out with girlfriends. It's probably just as well. I'm not sure how well my father would have handled it if I'd had a boyfriend. I graduated from the University of Texas, held a series of temporary jobs, and eventually went to work at the Texas State Library's Talking Book Program. After three and a half years... I moved away to get married, and when we moved back to Austin, I eventually applied for a position at the Talking Book Program and continued working there until I retired. I have been content overall with my life. COVID has seriously limited the places we can go, but I think we have adapted. Gino J says, Before I talk about myself, I'd like to fill you in on my mom. She went to Perkins. When she was considering enrolling me into school, she was very close to letting me go to Perkins, but I'm glad she didn't. From what I've heard from some of those who went to school at Perkins, they had lost a lot of their focus on blind students. It was always a school for the blind and deaf, but now they seem to put an emphasis on students with multiple disabilities. When I grew up, I was enrolled in public schools. I found it difficult to get many of the accommodations and rights as other students until my junior year in high school. Before my junior year, I went to the Carroll Centre for the Blind and they wrote up an IEP plan and surprised many of my teachers that I needed more help to be more productive. I was upset in my freshman year because I wanted to go to a trade school. 
I think it would have been more of a challenge, but it would have made my college years a lot better. My opinion is a blind school would be something that could be beneficial to most blind students if they are focused on providing many of the techniques and common mistakes blind people make. There is a social disadvantage, I think, in blind schools, though, but I think it more or less is how blind people interact with one another and not necessarily the issue of the blind teachers and staff if they are trained properly and again focus on blindness. I would have found it difficult to go to a trade school, but I would have also been better off in college. I found it extremely challenging in college. I don't think blind schools to college has anything to do with it. I think it primarily is down to the accommodations that your public school provides for you as a blind student. I will say there are some things I would have gained in a blind school. But in the end, I think I am happier I did go to public schools as it would have made being independent much more difficult. If I ever have children, though, I know what I will be doing. If they want it, they're going to a trait school. Thank you, Gina. I'm not familiar with that term. I'm not sure what a trait school is or whether it's trade school, but it's, you're spelling it T-R-A-I-T, so it could just be an American term I'm not familiar with, but I appreciate the contribution. Now, Daniel Semro is living the dream right now. He says, about three years ago, I started at the School for the Blind here in Illinois, where I was up until December of last year, when I aged out. That's a cool term. (laughs) That year, I had a very scary thing happen, May 6th, 2017. It was Saturday, prom day. Yay! I was so excited. But remember, this was my first year, so my mobility wasn't perfect on campus. Anyway, I went to the dining hall and had lunch. The way back to the dorm is where the trouble started. I walked out of the dining hall and thought I was heading back. The kids had gone ahead, so I didn't trip over them while walking. I somehow got lost by the basketball court on campus. I tried to call the residential person that was watching us at the time. No answer. I did it again. No answer. A security guard had to come and get me and walk me back to the dorm. I got back okay and talked to another staff that was in my pod in the dorm. We had two boys' pods, two girls' pods. Anyway, it turns out the staff member that was walking back with us had gone on break, not watching the new student, me. I was out there for about an hour, being attacked by bugs. And a contribution from the UK, May Thompson says, I think it was the right thing for me to go to a school for the blind. I started when I was three, and I found leaving home very traumatizing. We lived over a hundred miles away from the school and had to go on the train where two escorts took us from Aberdeen Education Authority, a lady who was in charge of the girls and a man who looked after the boys. I used to get upset days before I had to go back and would talk about having only two more breakfasts, dinners, etc. to go. I remember locking myself in the bathroom and my mum having to get a neighbour to talk me out. I also remember taking ages to eat my breakfast, thinking in my childish way that if I delayed it somehow, I wouldn't have to go. My mum came to Edinburgh one time on the train all the way 
and while the other children were upset, I was quite happy as mum was with me on the train, but she said she would never do that again, as all it did was delay the heartbreak of me having to say goodbye. We only got home in the holidays, as we lived too far from the school, but I remember when I was about 13, we started to get long weekends at half-term. If I dwell on it too much, I find myself getting upset. Leaving my family at such a young age, I feel, had a very harmful effect on me. Now, that's awful, mate. Just makes me want to give you a hug. I'm really sorry to hear that story. And unfortunately, I think it is all too typical. I can certainly relate, not because I went through it personally, but because I'm sure that a lot of students here who I went to school with felt the same way. And three is incredibly young to be parted from your parents, isn't it? Kelby Carlson says, this is something I've thought about for a long time. And I would say that context is everything. For example, I grew up in both a district with one of the best blindness resource programs in the country and also with parents who were determined to see me succeed in the ordinary world and not be relegated to any kind of ghetto. I received regular Braille instruction from the time I was about three, had consistent mobility training from around that age and was regularly involved in sports and other extracurricular activities. All of my teachers, called vision teachers back in those days, which I never even thought about, were excellent, provided me with stellar education and technology, and never allowed me to make excuses based on my lack of sight. My regular teachers were also always accommodating. I can't ever remember a time when they wouldn't or couldn't work with me to get me things in the formats I needed or alter an assignment so that I could do it in a comparable way to my sighted peers. So I was pretty much perfectly placed to have an excellent education in a mainstream environment. I know, however, that in many ways my advantages are rare. Many people do not have dedicated resource teachers or Braille teaching or travel skills or any of the dozens of benefits that I had either because of lack of resources or lack of knowledge and concern of many parties. In this case, a school for the blind might well have benefited them more. I did visit my state's school for the blind during a couple of summers, and while I enjoyed it, I don't think I would have gotten a better education there. The people I know who came out of that particular school don't seem to have gotten all of the educational benefits I did, but of course my sample size is limited, so it's hard to say how universally true that is. One disadvantage of primarily being around other blind people is that you do not always get accustomed to social cues that are typical for sighted people. Being socially awkward or being thought so can be a huge disadvantage in the employment context and elsewhere. And I have definitely seen this among those who have been educated at schools for the blind also. I will say that I did not get as much travel training or independent living skills practice as I might have if I had either attended a school for the blind or a rehabilitation center. While I did get some, and it was consistent, it just wasn't as frequent as it might have been other places. While I've managed to develop those skills over time, I'm still not entirely satisfied with where I am. I don't think that is my instructor's faults. They just had a lot to do and limited amount of time. All that being said, 
My circumstances are not universal, and I have many advantages that some people do not. But I would still say mainstreaming is probably best if it can be made to work the right way. Thanks very much, Kelby. I do have to comment on one part of your message because you pushed one of my buttons there using the term ghetto. This sometimes comes up when people use the term ghetto in a blindness context to somehow demean people's choices. And I think it is really unfortunate. You see, for example, products like Note Takers for the Blind or the Victorita Stream or anything that is made specifically for our market, sometimes being referred to as a ghetto product. It's hard not to interpret that as quite a pejorative term. And similarly, if we apply that to schools for the blind, look, there are all sorts of specialized schools, whether they be military academies or people of specific religions like Catholic schools. There are schools for gifted children. So would we call a school for a gifted child a ghetto school? I don't think so. So I think there is a case to be made that some people may thrive in an environment where they are exposed all the time in their education uh, to teachers who are literate in Braille, who have knowledge of blindness, just as the mainstreaming environment has clearly worked really well for you because you were resourced well. And I think you hit the nail on the head there that mainstreaming can work really well and give you all those social benefits of staying at home with your family, being in your community, just integrating, which is so important for life, isn't it? Because there's the academic side of education, and then there's the preparation for life, which in many cases is a lot more important. And that's where being in your community can be so advantageous. But mainstreaming a blind child is a different proposition, say, from mainstreaming a child with a physical impairment, where you might have to make one-off modifications to the building to make sure that it's wheelchair accessible, that kind of thing, and perhaps work on a little bit of education. If you're going to mainstream a blind kid well, it's going to require a lot of resourcing. And sadly, too often the philosophy is there, but the resources are not. I'm glad that was not the case for you. Well, good evening, Jonathan and Miss Bonnie. I hope all is well. This is Marvin Rush in Louisiana. As you guys know, we got hit by a hurricane the 27th of August, which I know you've probably, all you guys have read is Lake Charles and all that, but we live 30 miles north of Lake Charles, so... Anyway, we got a bad dose of it. We lost several trees and all kinds of things. We were out of electricity 18 days. And uh, Jonathan, think about that right quick. No gadgets for 18 days. But we did buy a generator, and, and so we had fans, and we could charge our cell phones and all that. I'm one of those weird kids. I went away to the School for the Blind in Alamogordo, New Mexico, when I was five years old. In fact, my parents actually sold out, bought a place in Alamogordo, and moved there because I went to the School for the Blind. Fall of 64 was when I started going to the School for the Blind. Anyway, in 1970, we moved to Texas. And 
my parents and I talked about it. I mean, I was 11 years old by then, 10 year, 11, and we decided the best that, you know, the best thing for me to be would to go to public school, which I did. During that late 60s era, the academics at the School for the Blind in New Mexico, and I don't know how they were anywhere else, but the School for the Blind in New Mexico, the academics left a lot to be desired. So it took me a long time academically to catch up. But I'm glad I did it, and I've listened to all the comments so far. Yes, I know about the teachers not expecting enough from you and all that. I've uh, experienced that before. In fact, even the teacher of the visually impaired that I had, she was even kind of that away. There was another guy that went to school all the way from the fifth grade through high school that was also blind. And I'm not going to go into all that. But anyway, when I got out of high school, I went to Texas Tech in Lubbock, Texas, and got my teaching certificate. And the day I got my teaching certificate, I, got, I called that lady on the phone, and I said, Mrs. Whatever Your Name Is, I want you to know that I have a teaching certificate and I'm going to go do a better job than you did. And I made a lot of observations working with blind kids, working for the Commission for the Blind, working for Seeing Eye. The ability to socialize, it's uh, something that can make you or break you. Because if you cannot uh, socially get along with your coworkers, I always used to tell my kids when I was working transition in Texas, make those employers and the people you work with like you. Because, you know, you don't want to fire somebody you like. No, it's never pleasant to fire anybody, but certainly not someone you like. Marvin, it's so good to hear from you. Thanks for your good wishes. I'm glad that you got through that hurricane okay, despite the gadgetlessness for that prolonged period. It's really great that uh, you and yours are safe. And I also think it is so critical, the work that you have done over the years, because I think one of the best gifts that we can give blind kids is access to adult blind role models. People just holding down a job, maybe with a family, maybe not, but just living life as well-adjusted adults. It's so important. And it's important for the parents too, to have positive expectations set. So well done on all that you've done in your career. Gordon Luke says, I listened with great interest to your various contributions to the subject of education and the various ways in which we were all educated. I'm not sure there's a perfect solution fit for everyone, but it is interesting just how varied things were for us all. I'm not sure either that what young blind people have today is better or worse than we experienced, just different. Saying all that, the world of the 1970s and 1980s is somewhat different than it is today. For example, I grew up in Glasgow, a tough city at any time, but one during that period still dominated by religious splits, almost akin to that of Belfast in Northern Ireland. 
my blindness came as something of a surprise to my parents, but being the practical people they were, they just got on with things. My mum, being a primary teacher, and my dad, a secondary one, meant that education was very important to them. However, education experts of the time told them that they knew what was best for their blind son, i.e. to be educated at a specialist school for the blind. Now, as I was brought up Protestant, that meant being sent to boarding school in Edinburgh at the age of five, only getting home at the holidays. There was a school in Glasgow, but that was for Roman Catholic children, thus excluding me. These were the only two specialist schools for the blind in Scotland at the time. Now I think there isn't one left, but I could be wrong. So began a long battle not to educate me at the specialist school, as that would require a religious shift, something that would take years to happen, but instead to educate me at my local school, five minutes walk away, where my sister and brother had previously attended. Eventually they won their battle, and with them as my support team, as modern terms would call them, helping me with my preparation for reading and writing and all that good stuff. It's only now, when I look back, that I can see just how much effort they put in to allow me to succeed, constantly being sniped at from the sidelines by those who said I would do much better at their specialist school. And was it easy? Of course not. But neither was it impossible. We were all learning together as to what worked and what didn't. For example, in the early years it was thought that I should sit at the front of the class, right beside the blackboard, with the other naughty boys. No comments, Mr. Mosin, it says here. Ah, spoil, spoil. However, a teacher in primary three realized that it made no difference if I was sat three feet or thirty feet from the blackboard. I was never going to see it. Thus, I got to sit with my friends, or at least I got to sit there until we misbehaved too much. P.E. was another difficult area, and I suspect I realized sooner than most boys that I was never going to play football, sorry, soccer, for Scotland at a much earlier age than they did. However, I did make friends, and I'm still pals with some of them today. Like other boys, I got into fights, generally whenever someone would tell me that I couldn't take part because I couldn't see. I consider that a part of growing up, learning to control one's temper and knowing which battles to fight and which to let go. I also thrived on the education, finishing top boy in my year in primary seven, my last year at primary school, and gaining an understanding as to how the world really worked when you can't see. When it came to secondary education, the experts were out in force. However, my dad, being a teacher in the secondary school in Glasgow, realized that this was going to be a problem area. You don't just have to work with one teacher, but multiple, and a large secondary school simply hasn't got time or resource, certainly in those days, for someone with special needs. My sight was getting worse too, and certain skills needed to be taught. Odds on, someone too would decide one day to give me a right doing. Remember, this was Glasgow in the 1980s, a tough city, with my local secondary taking in pupils from one of Glasgow's toughest areas. Also, one set of parents had challenged the education authorities over the Roman Catholic-only school for the blind policy, a battle they eventually won, 
I was thus free to attend the school in Glasgow and not have to board. This specialist school was something very different from what I had been used to. Looking back, that was both good and bad. Firstly, it was an amazingly positive place to be. For the first time in many years, there had been a group of pupils who'd started to go to university and actually crack the education world. This had started after a 14-year-old boy had lost his sight and had come to the school only to discover that his dream of becoming a lawyer wasn't possible with the setup at the time. His parents had fought to get teachers in who could let their son succeed, and he'd got into the university. Others had followed in his wake, and this became the new norm. So, at the time, the school had a can-do attitude with teachers who believed in their pupils. I arrived knowing that I lacked certain skills. Thus, I was taught to read and write up to grade 2 Braille in four weeks. I'll never be as good a Braille reader as you are, Jonathan, but I can get by. This enabled me to read much faster than print, and so meant I could keep up much better with things like French. I'd love to hear you speaking French with a Scottish accent, Gordon. (coughs) I also learned formal mobility skills, something you don't appreciate until much later in life. PE was also an area where I moved from being the last to be picked for team games to being the first. However, I was always aware that no matter how good your friends thought you were at something, I always knew that compared to my sighted friends, there was a massive gap. However, my proudest moment at the school was leading the boys out at football for our first ever competitive match with the blind school from Edinburgh. And just for the record, we won! On the negative side, those that had been educated by the school at primary level really had been let down badly. I was shocked even then about how little general knowledge they had. Being a Roman Catholic school, they knew lots about the Bible, but, for example, couldn't tell you which ocean lay between the UK and the US. There was also a quite naive view of how the outside world worked. They were shocked that blind people wouldn't always be listened to and that they would sometimes have to fight for their rights. They were shocked that disabled people might be mocked by some and that at times surviving was as good as you might hope for. One sad thing was the number of them who simply sank without trace after leaving school. The network of friends which they had at the school was gone and they found themselves quite isolated in their local communities. This is one major downside to specialist education, though it may not be so bad these days with our modern connected world. The school also only taught a limited number of subjects. However, I wanted to be as good as my sister and brother, so wanted to study what they had. No blind person had ever taken physics or chemistry to exam level in Scotland. The maths teacher agreed to teach me but with only one in the class and not having the facilities to carry out the experiments, this was proving tricky. Thus, a new plan was hatched. I would go back to my local secondary school and take these subjects. So, after three years away, I returned to my classmates from my primary days. This was quite a strange experience, and I can admit to being quite terrified. However, after some initial shyness, we resumed where we'd all left off three years before. 
as I still lived in my local community, I still saw most of them on a weekly basis, but there was a whole new dynamic in the school setting. Thus started my life of being part of two schools at the same time. To be honest, I loved it, both parts. I enjoyed the camaraderie of my blind friends, but I also loved the greater academic competition at my local secondary. I was out there showing how it could be done and succeeding. I would do the non-science subjects at the blind school, and they would give me backup brailing handouts, etc., and allowing me to thrive. This sort of model started to be adopted going forward, though special units started appearing in specific secondary schools rather than local ones. I'm not sure if this is still how things are done today. In theory, things should be so much easier, but perhaps technology overcomplicates things rather than simplifying things. For example, people are taught to use equipment which goes out of date rather quickly rather than gaining basic braille skills. But perhaps that's a topic for another show. There are so many skills we as blind people need to gather and learning them at an early age is simply the best time as your brain is so much more flexible and able to learn. I made a success of my education not because of experts but because of sheer hard work from both my parents and latterly from the teachers at the blind school. I owe them a massive debt of gratitude. University, in comparison, was much easier than it was for many of my blind friends. I knew the sort of world that was out there and that I would have to fight to allow me to succeed in it. I also had a template for lecturers to follow and they were willing to take on the challenge. I think I was the first blind person in Scotland to get a degree in mathematics and due to some hard work, I was able to get a first. As one lecturer said to me one day, Mr. Luke, for someone with very little natural mathematical ability, you work dashed hard with the small amount of ability you do have. I'm still not sure to this day whether this was a compliment or an insult. Hey, Jonathan, it's Mickey. Just wanted to let you know that... Um I'd love to be listening to your show today, but unfortunately, somebody chopped up the cable with a tractor. So, I would like to see on the podcast a quick description of how a person with only only cellular data can connect with Mushroom FM. I tried Siri. And Siri just played lots of mushroom stuff that I don't care about. Well, thank you, Mickey. And I do hope they fix that cable. That's highly dodgy that they would break the cable right when you're trying to listen. Cellular data is not relevant in this case. The iPhone behaves the same way, whether you're using cellular data or Wi-Fi. And we've had similar questions from Petra and Francisco and a few others as well. So... Understandably, I listen to Mushroom FM a lot, and usually I say play Mushroom FM, and it just plays it. Voila, this has been a thing since iOS 13. About a week and a half ago, that stopped happening. And it's not just Mushroom FM. It's a very wide range of radio stations. I don't know what the variable is. It could be all of the ones on TuneIn, or it could be more complex than that. It could possibly be all stations using Shoutcast or Icecast, but it is much more widespread than just Mushroom FM. 
Now, to be clear, this is not just Siri-related either. It's actually Apple Music-related. So when I go into my Apple Music radio tab and I look at the history of stations that I've listened to recently, Mushroom FM and a number of other stations that I listen to have just vanished, and they're not available on Apple Music or to play with Siri anymore. I did contact Apple about this. I've probably spent about three hours on the phone trying to get some sort of sensible answer. If it's a bug, well, fair enough, but I suspect it's more than that. I suspect they have taken some sort of decision to pull certain types of stations from the directory. And I'm surprised that there is nothing in the tech press that I have read about this, which I guess just goes to show how much of a priority internet radio has out there. I mean, I'm amazed at how quickly the whole tune-in radio in the UK thing has just disappeared without a trace. It's just dissipated. Anyway, I called Apple, and of course, with the first level tech support, they want to know what device are you using and all this kind of thing. And I kept saying to them, it's nothing to do with my device. I'm getting emails from people around the world telling me that this has disappeared. Can you tell me what's happened so I can explain it to them? And I still don't have an answer. In terms of how to get around this problem, I have noticed that you can now give a Siri command to the TuneIn app. So if you have the free TuneIn app installed on your iPhone, you can now say to Siri, play Mushroom FM on TuneIn and any other radio station that you can no longer hear on Apple Music. And that does appear to work. So getting the free TuneIn radio app is a good option. There are other radio options as well. Tunes or Utunes, I can never remember how you're supposed to pronounce that, is accessible. And, of course, it's the same directory that's used in the Victor Reader stream. They do have quite a few streams that TuneIn does not. There's another one made by the people who make Twitterific called Triad. You will find Mushroom FM in there as well. And that is an app that works across the Apple operating systems. So it's it's on the Mac as well. And I think Apple TV. So Triad is another option. But uh, those are paid for apps. TuneIn is free. And at the moment, it does appear to be integrated with Siri. I have no clue what has happened to the Apple Music directory to see so many of these radio stations just vanish. It would be nice to have an explanation. We have various miscellany. How's that for tautology? Various miscellany from Petra this week. She says, I'll start with words. Oh, she means business. The word impacts means to me a wrecking ball hitting a building or a car hitting a power pole, not the weather. The weather has an effect or will affect my plans for the day, but not impact them. Okay, so we will get the official Mosin at Large fact-checking team on the case here, and we will rule this true or false. Let's ask the drinker. Well, I'm sure that she'll settle it for us. Soup drinker. Define the word impact. As a noun, impact is usually defined as the striking of one thing against another, forceful contact, collision. As a verb, impact is usually defined as to drive or press closely or firmly into something, pack in. For more, ask me to give you more definitions for impact. Soup drinker, give me more definitions for impact. I have nine more definitions for impact as a noun. One, an impinging. Two, influence. Effect. Ah. Three. An impacting, forcible impinging. Four. The force exerted by a new idea, concept, technology, 
or ideology. Yep. As a verb, five, to fill up, congest, throng. Six, to collide with, strike forcefully. Seven, to have an impact or effect on, influence, yes. alter. Mm -hmm. Eight, to have impact or make contact forcefully. Nine, to have an impact or effect. Yep. Okay. So based on definitions two, four, seven, and nine in that list, the Mosin at Large fact checking department is calling Petra's assertion false. It's clearly there in the dictionary. And also, after Daniel's message last week to the show, I was struck by how many times I came across the word impact. You guys may not like it, but that's what it means these days in addition to what you are saying. It's in the dictionary. It's in common use. You're going to have to just live with that one, I'm afraid. But is Petra done yet? No, she is not. She continues. The word wreck doesn't apply to a car hitting a person. That's an accident. A wreck is a collision between a car and something hard. I would agree with that one. <laughs> I'll give you that. When a body, she continues, is found... It's really alive. So why don't they just say a body was found instead of a dead body was found? I don't know. Now we're getting off words, which is good. And we're getting onto phone cases. Oh, no, I think I'd rather have words than phone cases. Phone cases, says Petra. I have always used them on my iPhones. Without them, the newer iPhones are slippery. And I'm afraid they will get scratched. Being a girl, she says, see, if I called you a girl, Petra, I'd get inundated and uninundated with emails calling me sexist. But anyway, you can call yourself a girl. Being a girl, I like to change them depending on what I'm wearing or my mood for the day. What do you do? What, what kind of case do you have, Petra, when you're mad about people using the word impact, which is in the dictionary and in common usage? Uh, about schools, she says, I may have told you some time ago that I went to public schools in the Los Angeles area, which were integrated as early as the 1950s. In what we call grammar school, we had a resource room and teacher. Some of the resource teachers were better than others, of course. One actually didn't know Braille, and since I did, because of another really good teacher, she had me correcting and helping other younger students. I took it as a compliment, but as I grew up, I realized she was using me for a cover. After grammar school and what we called junior high, I went to a high school where I was the only blind student. That was much harder. The books I needed for Spanish and math weren't ready in time, and rehab didn't offer to pay for readers, so my mum hired the girl next door who was two years younger than I. High school wasn't fun and turned me off on higher education. I only went for a year and a half of junior college. I visited Perkins on a family vacation and thought how things could have been different, but I wouldn't have wanted to be away from my family and neighborhood. Before high school, my mom enrolled me in Girl Scouts in my hometown, so I had friends when I went to high school. That did help. Looking back, I think being integrated with a resource teacher and you can stay home is best. Well, that's my three topics. I'm not as good as expressing myself as most of your other emailers, but those are my thoughts. 
Have a wonderful vacation. Thank you, Petra. And you're just great at expressing yourself. You have a profound impact on this show. We're continuing to get a trickle of feedback in on Apple's most recent releases. So thank you very much. Feel free to continue to send that in. I'd also be really interested to hear whether widgets have changed your life and how you might have reorganized your home screens to accommodate widgets. What widgets in particular have you found to be particularly helpful? Terry is in Phoenix, Arizona. She says, I hope this is not an actual bug. Maybe it is something that is happening on my phone only. When I downloaded the bug fixes version, that's 14.0.1 of iPhone 14, I have now found when I go to answer a call, if I just double tap on answer, I do not get the keypad. Not a big deal if it is just going to be a voice call. However, if you are needing the dial pad to interact with the system, such as banking, stores, or any number of other services that require you to touch one for this and two for that, three, etc., this has a huge impact on me working at the university because it makes it extremely difficult to activate two-factor authentication. I actually use two-factor authentication at least three to four times every day at work, so this is a huge deal. I did figure out how to activate the keypad. It's a two-step process. First, when the call starts ringing into the phone, you have to swipe to the left until you get to the person's name or phone number listed there, double tap, and the phone will continue ringing, and then you quickly swipe to the right three or four times, depending on how long it takes you to get to answer. Double tap answer, and you'll get call, and the keypad will appear. This is a frustrating workaround. Yes, thank you, Terry. Sorry for my hesitancy in reading that, but it was dictated, and there's missing punctuation, and some words misrecognized, and it really is uh, quite tough. So if people wouldn't mind typing when they email in, that certainly makes my job a little bit easier. Anyway, to get to this important point, Terry, there is a workaround, I believe, if I'm understanding your issue correctly. So let's take a look. We'll ask Siri to open the settings app. Open settings. Settings. Next, we'll locate phone button. And we'll double tap. Allow phone to access heading. Just flick through here. Syrian search, notifications, incoming calls, full screen button. There we go. I've already changed this. So you have options here for incoming calls. I have it set to full screen, which I find much easier. The default, though, I think is not. So if you go in here. When iPhone is unlocked, display as heading, banner, selected, full screen, phone, FaceTime, and other apps you use to receive calls will use the selected display style. And when you set it back to full screen, you'll have what you had before in the previous versions. So give that a shot and see if that resolves it for you. Pam Quinn says, I wondered if anybody else is experiencing this bug since updating to iOS 14. My sound volume keeps going down to 0%. I've gone into sounds and haptics, tried setting it to 100%, both with changing with buttons off and on, with no different results. It keeps going back to zero. I have an iPhone 8, still wishing I could downgrade. Oh, yeah, your window of opportunity has passed now. Unfortunately, they've stopped signing uh, iOS 13. 
I've not seen this personally. The one bug that's really bugging me uh, with audio is the one I think I've talked about here before, where audio ducking just spontaneously stops working. And when it does that, what it does is it keeps the audio ducking permanently down. This only occurs for me when I'm using my made-for-iPhone hearing aids. And I don't know whether it's my made-for-iPhone hearing aids specifically or whether others who have made-for-iPhone hearing aids are experiencing this too. But the audio ducking basically keeps the audio down, keeps it ducked, and the only way to get it up again is to turn speech off and then the audio comes back up. Or you can triple-click the side button to turn voiceover off and back on again, and that fixes it for a very brief period. It's actually surprisingly fatiguing to have to do this dozens and dozens of times a day just to get your audio ducking back. However, not to take away from your bug, Pam. If anybody has experienced this or has any suggestions about what might be going on, please be in touch. And Faraz says, Hi, Jonathan, I have enjoyed your podcast when you reviewed the What's New in iOS 14 and WatchOS 7. There is one small change that you have not mentioned in your podcast that is worth mentioning, and that is that the pages on your home screen are properly labeled as they should have been, meaning your page one of the home screen is properly labeled page one. This will help when training new people on how to use the iPhones. Benji writes, a quick one to share with you and the listeners, my first impressions of iOS 14. It's slower than iOS 13. It was the first thing I noticed after installation, a slight, albeit noticeable, slowdown in performance. I have none of the new AI features turned on, as performance seems to suffer even more with them running. I have an iPhone 11 and an iPad mini 2019, in other words, up-to-date hardware, and already having performance issues. Thanks, Benji. I wonder whether what you were experiencing is the voiceover sluggishness issues, which I have not seen, but certainly exist because a lot of people are reporting it. And that could be what you've got. I'm running an iPhone 11 Pro Max and knocking on the wood, I'm delighted to say I have not seen any slowdown at all in performance myself. I haven't even had the voiceover lag. So I'm wondering if you try and do the workarounds that some people have found for the voiceover lag where you set up the same language that you like to use as one of the languages in the rotor, in other words, as a secondary language, I wonder if that'll help you out with the sluggishness. If others have seen poorer performance that goes beyond the voiceover issues that we all know about, then by all means, let us know what you're experiencing. It is also worth noting that a lot of people are having battery life issues. This is not particularly unusual with new releases of Apple operating systems. And sometimes it can take just a few days to settle down, while at other times the problems are a lot more serious. I was reading in an article recently that somebody's battery drained from 100% to below 10% in an hour on their iPhone. I have had really dodgy battery life, unpredictable battery life on my Apple Watch since purchasing the Series 5 last year. And I've tried everything. I've uninstalled all third-party apps, just taken it back to bare bones, looked at background app refresh, made sure that I didn't have noise notifications on because that's using the mic, and I figured that might be contributing to it. But I never really got to a point where it was satisfactory, or perhaps I did towards the end of my time with the Series 5. 
So after I got the Series 6 and restored from my backup, I had a great experience. I charged all the way up and then wore the watch and the battery life was phenomenal. It was at 100% forever. And then it very slowly drained and I thought I could get a day and a half out of this, which I think is supposed to be fairly typical. And then without doing anything, without adding anything, I charged the watch when it was time to charge it and started using it again, and the battery life plummeted. That's all I did. Just charge it again. And since we're on holiday tomorrow, I thought I want the best battery life I can have. So yesterday I did the nuclear, nuclear, as uh, former President Bush would say. (laughs) And I erased my watch, and I set it up as new, which is not actually the hassle that it used to be, particularly because now you can share your watch faces. So knowing that I was going to reset my watch, I sent myself, it's like the old song about sitting right down and write yourself a letter, except these days it's I'm going to sit right down and send myself my watch face. Oh, somebody should do a parody. Yeah. I sent my watch faces to myself and I put them in the files app on my phone. So I had all my complications set up just the way I like them. And I had the weather one on the infograph watch face in just the right place so you get as much weather data as you can get and it was all good so i restored and again the same thing has happened phenomenal battery life when i took it off the charger after that and then after the first charge the battery life is not as good as it was now it's not absolutely plummeting it's fair to say it's just nowhere near i think as good as it should be And I've tried everything, you know, I've made sure that hand washing is off, although I do really like the hand washing feature. There's just something cool about it, but that doesn't seem to help very much. I've tried various things. Now, there's also been a problem with people losing GPS data from workouts. And of course, last week, we heard about Peggy Kern's problems with watchOS and iOS talking to one another, and that she's lost a massive, like four-figure move streak when trying to troubleshoot this issue with Apple. And Apple is suggesting that if you've got problems, you should back up your phone and your watch, erase them both, and restore them both. Now, that just seems to me extraordinary to ask users to do this. It suggests some sort of major quality control issue that users are expected to go through all of those hoops, far from the sort of it just works standard that we would expect from Apple, isn't it? So it's a great mystery, this battery life. And of course, it just doesn't affect some people. And that's the thing. I mean, Bonnie's now got her Series 6 Apple Watch and her battery life is really good. Um, So I would probably go ahead and do the whole erase my iPhone thing, except I would use an encrypted iTunes backup. I would not use a backup from iCloud and see if that does the job, except that I'm still on the fence until the next Apple event about whether I'll get the iPhone 12, one of the offerings there. So if I'm going to do that, it seems like it's not worth the bother for now. It's not completely show-stopping battery life that I'm getting. And I'm pleased to say that my iOS battery life is just fine. So we'll see what happens. Mickey Quenza says, I'm having trouble with my iPhone XS Max running iOS 14. The problem is that hitting, don't hit that, hitting the side button three times does not turn off voiceover anymore. Neither does it turn it back on. I've looked all over and can't figure out how to fix this. 
there's nothing in the site definition of the side button that works. Any suggestions? Yes, well, I've had a similar problem in that I have made for iPhone hearing aids as well. And every time I do a soft reset of the phone, when I'm trying to troubleshoot my watch battery issues, and you do that by pressing volume up, volume down, and then holding down the side button in all quite rapid succession, or I install an update to iOS, perhaps it's a new beta of iOS, what I find is that despite my settings, the side button has changed to have me choose between voiceover and my MFI hearing aids. And if I wanted that, I would have set it up that way. But it keeps changing every time I do anything like that. But all you have to do, Mickey, is go into accessibility settings. So um, tell Siri to open accessibility settings at the very bottom of the screen. So it couldn't be easy to find. Just do a four-finger tap towards the bottom of your screen. At the very bottom there, you will find an option for what the side button does when you triple click it. Daniel Jacob says, I don't know if you have an iPad or not, but I have two. Oh, look at you go. Yeah, I do have an iPad, but since I got made for iPhone hearing aids, I don't use it as much because handover just simply doesn't happen, at least when voiceover is on. So I hardly ever use it, and I, I guess I won't buy another one unless Apple fixes this one day. I noticed yesterday when I upgraded to iPad OS 14, there is absolutely no way to turn on or off mobile hotspot on cellular enabled iPads. In fact, there is no hotspot feature at all in iPad OS, at least none that I can see. I just wondered if you know anybody else with an iPad who might be experiencing the same issue. Maybe this is a problem that occurs only in North America. I did file a bug report with Apple. If you might have any additional insight, that would be great. Thanks. Well, thank you, Daniel. This feature is carrier dependent. In other words, a carrier can make it visible or not visible. But if it was there in iPadOS 13 and then you upgraded and now it is not, then it sounds like it may not be your carrier. But it could be a bit of toing and froing between Apple and your carrier to get to the bottom of it. If it's disappeared in general, I'm sure others will let us know about that. But good luck. And if you get a resolution, let us know how that worked out for you. Mosin at Large Podcast. Hi from Dawn in Sydney, says this message. I recently bought an Apple Watch. While I find it very useful, one of the most annoying things is how sensitive it is. I find when I take someone's arm, it speaks continually while I am walking. Do you know of a way to stop this? Or should I just wear it on the other arm? Good to hear from you again, Dawn, and I hope you have many happy, chatty years of experience with your Apple Watch. Let's see if we can reduce some of that chatter. Based on what you describe, I think that this will help. So we'll go into the Watch app on the jolly old iPhone. Open Watch. Now we're going to navigate to the general options. Complications, but notification, app view, dock, but general. There button. we go. There's general. I'll double tap. About button. And we'll flick through until we get to the wake screen options. Software, automatic, when this airplane, do not watch or language, Apple, I, background, enable dic- dictation, set, enable hand, handoff, let's use wake screen button. There we go. There's a button called wake screen. I'll double tap. Wake on wrist, raise, off. 
double tap to toggle setting. Right there is, I think, the culprit. What this means is that when you raise your wrist, the watch wakes up. Now, apart from being a potential way to really drain your battery, and I, for one, have had a range of battery issues with my watch, it's also pretty chatty because when you wake on wrist raise, voiceover is going to speak the time. So based on your description, I think what's happening is you grab someone's arm with the hand that you have the Apple Watch on, and that's raising your wrist to grab the arm and probably pointing it in a direction that makes the watch think, oh, she wants to look at the time when you don't. So try going in there and turning wake on wrist raise off and it could solve the problem. I'd be keen to hear if it helps. Here's James on the subject of Apple Watch as well, and he says, I have been a keen swimmer all my life, and having lost my sight completely at the age of 17, was thankful that swimming had been my main sport. The reason being that one can continue completely independently as no help is necessary from third parties, as in outdoor running, football, tandem cycling, etc., Over the years, I used various gadgets on the side of the pool to get an idea of my times. This was rather haphazard, as it meant finishing an even number of lengths and then trying to find the off button on the timer, which, of necessity, had to be wrapped in a waterproof covering. I was elated when the Apple Watch arrived, and I was able to record distant swimming, minimum and maximum heart rate, time for each length, and until recently, how many lengths of freestyle, butterfly, and backstroke I had done. Having broken my first Apple Watch 3 by clouting a lane rope, note, not made of rope, but from a series of hard plastic discs threaded onto a thick metal rope, I found that I could just fit the watch around my lower leg and still able to get relevant information, although it is not as clever at identifying different strokes. My Apple Watch 5 is immersed for at least three hours a week in a 50-meter pool with no ill effects. Furthermore, because of COVID restrictions, the only showers that are allowed to be used are in the open air. Note, it is an outdoor heated pool. And I transfer the watch from ankle to wrist, then use the shower without putting on the water lock or pretending I am going for another swim. The one thing I don't do is use any shower gel or shampoo, as this is deemed to be potentially hazardous for the watch. That's right, yes, Apple does advise against this. I've read up on what to do, but I'm too chicken to do it. Anyway, James continues. I would go one step further and say that all these soaps, shower gels and shampoos inevitably dry our skin. This in turn necessitates the use of moisturizers. Thus, we attempted to use all these wonderful scented cleansers, followed by overpriced moisturizers, which is fabulous business for the companies involved. You, Jonathan, clearly have a sharp brain. Although that's nice, as illustrated not only by your tech geekery, but by your grasp of the ketogenic diet. Therefore, Consider the number of microbes living on your skin anywhere between a million and a billion per square centimeter. These little fellows are doing their very best to keep the skin healthy and smooth. What do we do? We do our best to disrupt 
this highly complex system which has been built up over many thousands of years which can result in all sorts of dermatological problems. It is not as though we are coal miners working at the pit face or farm workers heaving spadefuls of manure around. The vast majority of blind people, the ones lucky enough to be working, have fairly clean jobs. Yes, I do use shampoo once a week and use soap on my hands, but that is all. Thank you for your podcasts, which are informative and pull together many thoughts and perspectives from the blind community around the world. A good book that I would recommend, says James, in regard to microbes and their huge part in the natural world is I Contain Multitudes by Ed Yong. What an interesting subject, James. Thank you. I will read that book. But I must say that having done more than my fair share of exhibiting at various blindness conferences, it is pretty unpleasant when you encounter people whose hygiene isn't what it should be. You know what I mean. So I would take a bit of convincing. I understand the argument, but you've got to smell a bit nice, don't you? And especially if you're in a crowded area, you know. But I'll read the book. It sounds interesting. Hello, Jonathan. This is Gary O'Donoghue. Just following up on your unboxing of the Apple Watch Series 6, I noted you, sh- you said you couldn't show the Blood Oxygen app. Um, because you're on the beta cycle. So I thought I'd do a quick demo of that app for your listeners in case they're interested. I've got the app put in the dock on my watch. So I'm going to press the side button to bring up the dock. Calendar, dock. I'm going to swipe right. Sleep, Uber, blood oxygen. Actions available. I'm going to double tap with one finger to bring up the app. Blood oxygen, blood subscript 2, heading. I'm going to swipe right. 96%. Four minutes ago. I'm going to swipe right again. Start button. And that's all that's on this screen. So I'm going to double tap with one finger on the start button. Start. And you can hear it making a bleeping noise. That then turns into a sort of double bleeping noise with a bleep on the offbeat when it sort of sounds like it's speeding up. There it goes. And it's to a double bleep. Results heading. There's the results heading. I'm going to swipe right. Blood oxygen, 97%. Button. Going to swipe right again. Done. Button. That's all there is on that screen. Now, there's a button, obviously, associated with the result, which suggests there's more information. So I'm going to swipe back to that. Blood oxygen, 97%. Button. I'm going to double tap on that with one finger. About blood oxygen measurements. Swipe right. Blood oxygen, also known as oxygen saturation, represents the percentage of hemoglobin in your red blood cells that is carrying oxygen. Most people have a blood oxygen level of 95% to 100%. Your blood oxygen level can vary throughout the day. Going to swipe right again. Note, blood oxygen measurements are not intended for medical use. Normal disclaimer. So there it is. I'm just going to press the crown to get back to the watch space. 57 seconds. So that's how it works. And perhaps if anyone's interested, I could do the ECG next week, which makes a very curious noise while it's taking a reading. Anyway, I hope that helps. Thank you very much for that, Gary. Yes, it's cool, the old ECG noise, isn't it? It all sounds very sci-fi. I'm pleased to say that with the release of iOS 14.2 Beta 2, I do now have the watchOS blood oxygen level thing working. And it's been really interesting. 
Mine is, uh, I did get a couple of 94%. Oh, that's scary. But I also have had some 100%, which is very impressive. So for the moment, I've got quite obsessive. I've added it to my favorites of my health app on my iPhone. And I do go in and check how my blood oxygen is doing. Particularly helpful is that it does measure it when you're sleeping. So if you've got sleep apnea, you could perhaps get some low blood oxygen levels there. And that could be a sign that you might want to get that checked out. Sometimes I feel like some of these sections of the show need their distinct theme music. Let's see, like if I if I drill into the production library here, we can have a go at this. Let's see. Hello and welcome to another edition of Get Off My Case, a commentary on cases for the iPhone. Yeah, yeah, that's good, isn't it? Tristan Clare says... I am definitely pro-case for two reasons. First, I like a leather wallet with a hole for a long lanyard that hangs around my neck as I can wear my phone while using it. This is particularly helpful for using Ira, as I don't have to transfer my phone to a different case in order to have a hands-free experience. I also notice from the listener contributions to this topic that those of you who wax righteous... What?! about the aesthetic beauty of the iPhone being ruined by a case, are all male, while those of us who prefer a case are female. This may have something to do with the design differences between male and female clothing. I bet when you're not using your phone, you slip it into one of the many pockets that all men's clothing seem to have. In that situation, I can see why a case would be a hindrance, as it would increase the size of the object you have to slide into your pocket. Unfortunately, most female clothing, especially pants, doesn't come with pockets. If it does, then they're not deep enough to slide a phone in for easy reach. I suppose I could put mine in a handbag while not using it, but that would necessitate carrying a bag around just so I don't lose my phone. Also, I don't know about anyone else, but my current bag holds enough stuff to survive a week in the jungle, and searching through it in order to find my phone could be tricky. So, for myself, I prefer a case. It has to be a leather one, though. I'm not a fan of those backless plastic jobs where you need a screen protector on the front. I did try a screen protector for a while, but it always felt sticky, even after I cleaned it. So I went back to the feel of the original screen. I do relate to one thing you said, Tristan, and that is the extraordinary number of things that one can find in many women's handbags. I mean, I think if I was just walking along and I said to Bonnie, gosh, I wish we had an intercontinental ballistic missile right now, she would open her handbag and there would be one there somewhere. I mean, it would take her probably 45 minutes to find the blasted thing, but it would be there somewhere. Greetings from Munich, Germany, says Andre. Thank you so much for your great show. It's interesting, informative, and fun, as always. After listening to your interview with Karthik from Envision, I went to their website and saw the glasses are available for pre-order. Once upon a time, there was a contest led by Alita Group, where you had to write a short story about a future gadget for the blind, the most useful one or the one you dream about. Natalia, my wife, wrote a story about a young guy wearing glasses, very much akin to what Envision offers. 
And when she saw the videos on their site, she started to encourage me to go and pre-order the thing. But I'm in doubt. If they offer at least 80% of what they claim to offer, that's definitely a good deal. However, it might not be the case. And the price they ask for the glasses is quite a considerable amount of money. That said, I know you don't like it when people start their phrases with so, one bad habit of mine. (laughs) I'd like to ask you, could you please find and invite a person who did really use the glasses so he or she could tell us, your listeners, about his or her impressions thereof? Thanks a lot. Greetings to Bonnie and all of your wonderful family. Stay well. Well, greetings to you, Andre, and to Natalia as well. I will just put it out there if you are using the Envision glasses. And of course, we did hear from Tim a few weeks ago who had a brief play. But if you've got the Envision glasses and you are using those every day, then yes, I would be really keen, as I'm sure would other listeners, to know how they are integrating into your life. How good are they really? How practical are they? How much do they live up? To the hype. Please be in touch and share your impressions. I know many people would appreciate that. As for the so thing, Andre, it only bugs me when people start their answers or their messages with it. You go onto forums, for example, and someone says, so I'm wondering if anyone can help me, or a politician is being interviewed, and someone says to the politician, what's your economic solution as we recover from this COVID pandemic? And they say, so our... Yeah, the so in that case is completely redundant. The word so isn't always redundant, but I would argue that it is redundant when people begin answers or messages with it. That's my little pet peeve about that. Another one that is really popular in Australia, and a couple of conservative politicians in this country are trying to bring it here, and I resist it with great ferocity. Not that my ferocity makes a jot of difference in this case is Australian politicians love to start their political answers with the word look in this slightly confrontational, aggressive tone of voice. You'll hear the interviewer say something like, don't you think that it's a bit unreasonable that you're taking this position? And the politician will say, look. The fact is that, yeah, and they look, and they do it quite a lot in Australia. And just recently, I've seen it creeping in here, and I would like it to stop. Stop, I tell you. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. An email from Christian. He says, hi, Jonathan. I was wondering why you don't like Apple Podcasts. What's wrong with it? Ooh, I don't know if I ever said I don't like Apple Podcasts. I think Apple Podcasts is a good choice for many people. It is built into the operating system. It's got good Siri integration. And it syncs with a range of Apple devices. The Apple Watch support is very good. And you can listen to your podcasts using LTE if you have an Apple Watch cellular. It also works on Apple TV and, of course, on the Mac as well. So there's a lot to like if you're in the Apple ecosystem. You listen to podcasts on a range of devices and you just want everything in the one place with the classic Apple look and feel. So it's there and many people may find it perfectly adequate. For me, though, it does lack some features that some of the third-party podcast apps have. And this is a model that you often find with Apple. Apple will include apps in the operating system that have good functionality while leaving some space for premium app developers or third-party app developers to go in and offer something a little bit value-add. 
And certainly there's a lot of that in the podcast space. Overcast, which was developed in 2013 and continues to get regular and substantial updates, is a really good app. They've just come out with a bit of a game changer of a feature where they can report the way that some podcasts are tracking you, which is a bit scary that some podcasts are doing that. So with Overcast, you get that information. And I actually think it's worth having Overcast on your device just for that. Even if you choose not to make Overcast your primary podcast listening app, and I no longer do, I still like having this feature to check whether there are any dodgy podcasts that are tracking me without my consent, in which case I'll be unsubscribing from said podcasts in a jiffy. And of course, Overcast has good Apple Watch support, they have playlist management, and they have a form of storage, which is not as good as Castro's in my opinion, but you can still store things like MP3 files in your Overcast premium account, and then take advantage of some of the cool audio features that they offer, such as Voice Boost and Smart Speed. Pocket Cast is also a really good choice to consider if you listen to podcasts on multiple devices, because Pocket Cast works on iOS and Android, and they also have a Sonos implementation. I found their iOS app a little bit sort of kludgy for a while, but they've done some good work on the accessibility of the Pocket Casts app for iOS in recent times, so it might be worth checking it out again if you haven't. And of course, for me, the gold standard is Castro. And I won't repeat myself too much about Castro because I did a big review of it in January, only to say that because of Castro, with its innovative queue management feature, I have listened to a lot more podcasts since I got Castro than I ever did before because it's just so easy to manage them. They too have voice boost and smart speed features that are very good when you speed the podcasts up. It's intelligible. If you like working with podcasts that have chapters, such as this one, I really like being able to go through the list of chapters in advance, deselect the chapters that don't interest me, and then play the podcast so that the bits that don't interest me are seamlessly skipped. Now, you can't do that with Apple Podcasts. Also, of course, Castro, if you go premium, has that ability to copy files into iCloud Drive, and then you can just listen to them and take advantage of the voice boost and the smart speed so you have all your audio in Castro, even if it isn't a podcast. And of course, you can send YouTube stuff to Castro. That is so sweet. If you find a long YouTube video that you want to listen to, say, for example, a presidential debate. Of course, one of those is coming up quite soon. So say you miss it and you find it on YouTube, you can send it to Castro take advantage of all the Castro benefits, and it's just there. So the YouTube integration with Castro really is very slick. There's so much to recommend it that I did a whole podcast on this back in January, and a lot of people have enthusiastically switched to Castro since for very good reason. Oh, 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 and another thing I just remembered is that some of these third-party podcast apps offer clip sharing built into the app. This is another thing that you don't get with Apple Podcasts, and I really like this feature. Sometimes, for example, you will see on the Mosin at Large Twitter account that I will tweet just a small snippet of the most recent episode to tantalize somebody who might not have heard it yet to say, oh, this is a bit you might be interested in checking out in the podcast. Now, I can do that 
with a third-party web-based service, of course, if I'm an Apple Podcast user. But some of those services charge you a premium. But with Castro, and of course Overcast does this as well, I can select the part of the podcast that I want to share within the limitation, for example, that Twitter has of uh, of length, and then just share it, and it's all built in. So, so many things to like about a lot of these third-party podcast apps. But Apple Podcast is great, and if you're not what I would call a power podcast listener, it could be just fine for your needs. <sighs> it's time for another edition of the Bonnie Bulletin. Hello, guys. Happy, Hi, ha- guys. happy pregnant day. Preakness. Oh, although I, th- I thought it was a horse race called the pregnant. No, it's although you're not going to watch the pregnant, are you today? Yeah, um, oh, you are. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were heading off to the mall. I am, but I can take it with me. Um, you can't take it with you when you go. No. Who said that? Yeah, you've changed carriers. I have. I'm on Spark now because two degrees just wasn't cutting it. Yeah, they do have quite a patchy network. The price is right with two yeah. degrees, but, but even out here, going in on the bus, there were dead zones. Yes. One of the things I noticed, even out of all the three big networks that we have, and we have a range of virtual network operators, but we have three networks that actually have built infrastructure. So I've been on them all because I'm a churner, a churner. Mm -hmm. And I tell you what, Spark is just the most rock solid of all of them. I used to be able to, I used to go into work and I would have little breakups if I was listening to a stream, you know, somebody was being impeached or something, uh, and and it would break up. But with Spark, it's just rock solid the whole way in. Yeah, I don't get the in-progress and loading and all that stuff. Well, I'm glad you're happy because yeah. you were very nervous when I was changing it over. Well, yeah, because you don't want to – I remember one day, didn't it take a couple of days to port a number or something? Oh, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't want to be without your phone. Traumatizing. Yeah. Traumatizing. Yeah. So I, I, are you getting all stressed as we do the big packing up before we head off? Um, I've started a couple of days ago. You I pack like two years in advance I do. of any holiday. I do. I am not like some people that I've known that you call them at two in the afternoon and you hear churn, churn, churn. And the what are you doing? Do everything. I am washing clothes. I'm like, aren't you supposed to be on like a seven o'clock flight to London? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, no, I cannot do that. I don't know what it is, but I just always have to be – I'm always afraid I'm going to leave something, which – I mean, we're only going to Queenstown. It's not like they don't have stores in Queenstown. So technically, if you miss something, you could get Except it. Except that we're out at a resort way yeah. out of town, though. So yeah. it is actually – you know, there's no – I don't think Uber comes out there, do they? No. Maybe they do. I think they will drop you out there, but they won't come out there. I think yeah, that might be the deal. They won't come get you. Yeah. yeah. Michael Fair is with you. When it comes to packing, I always pack as much as a day before leaving. Sarah's more of a last-minute packer. It really frustrates me when people are last-minute packers because sometimes I've been in situations where, like, the taxi's there. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah, still, I forgot oh, I've to just pack. Put, oh, God. Oh, and then I do check and I double-check and I triple-check, you know, and then I probably check in the cab to make sure I have it. So yeah. It's just, it's, I kind of yeah. wish I were somewhere on the – between now i don't know if i should say this i really don't know if i should say this or not but the one thing that really drives me crazy about traveling with you yeah <laughs> is that when we get to the airport and we check in you always want to use the facility before we get to the gate always because i get nervous even though we just left like half an hour i get bef- nervous i about guess i could what? just i don't know it's just <laughs> always have been so i get nervous about flying i don't know 
<laughs> I guess they can go on the plane. They do have bathrooms on the plane. <laughs> That's really strange. Oh, and it's like this routine. Yeah. It's like when Richard was little, <laughs> we used to take him to, we used to take the kids to family restaurants and stuff. And um, he always insisted on using the ba- the toilet, not because he necessarily had to, but he liked checking out the different My toilets. My sister was that way. I don't, it's there's a lot of people who have children that are that way, and I don't know what it means. If he was a bit older, um, sorry, if, if if that was a little bit later, like if he'd have been perhaps um, I don't know, nine or ten years younger than he is, he could have done a whole YouTube thing. You know, we could have sent him in with a little, little one of those uh, GoPro cameras or something, and he could have videoed and done a little like a YouTube review <laughs> page of different facilities and restaurants. It would have gone viral. Yeah, you know, this sort of six, <laughs> seven-year-old boy reviewing it. it and speaking of this holiday that we are about to whisk ourselves away on. Late last week, Bonnie said to me, Jonathan, she said, we need a new Bluetooth speaker. And that's because we had this pair of mega booms, UE mega booms, but they've seen better days. I think we got them in 2013 and the battery's gone a bit dodgy on them. We don't use them much these days. But Bonnie said, we need a good Bluetooth speaker so we can listen to music and other things when we're on our break. So I was tasked with a quest to find a good speaker that we would take with us. So Heidi, our geek in residence, well, she's not in residence anymore, but she always likes to come and do the tech shopping with me. So Heidi and I went out and we did this, and we will review some of the products that we looked at, and we'll also unbox the one that I ended up buying, which is a Bose speaker that does both Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. And my reason for getting the Bose speaker was that I nearly went with Bose in 2016 instead of Sonos. But what stopped me was a series of accessibility challenges with the app, and I wanted to find out if the Wi-Fi part of this with the Bose Music app had improved any. Using it as a Bluetooth speaker, I knew would be straightforward. So we'll set it up. We'll unbox it. I'll talk about some of the products I looked at, and you can hear for yourself. That'll be in episode 71 coming up a bit later this week. And before anybody worries, no, I will not be playing with my computer to get this published. It's all on autopilot. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin at Large. 